And, and, and I have no sympathy here. I have no sympathy for any of these retailers at all. This is pure greed, brand new box and papers, Rolexes. People are charging five, 10, 30, $40,000 above retail because they got addicted to the idea that they may be able to with the idea of reselling it to consumer at an inflated price. I think this is unethical. I don't think this is good for the market. And so the less and less this happens, the better as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sorry for people that are losing out because that was their business model, but you'll find something else to do. This week's show with Rick, Ariel and David is pretty much Seiko all the way down, but can there be too much of a good thing? We have a smattering of Citizen and a very special Blog to Watch project with Raymond Vale, where we consider the now very evident downturn facing the flipping community. Finally, Ariel does the unthinkable and tells us what happened in Vegas. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. I am, as ever, joined by Ariel and David. How are you, gentlemen? Doing very well. Thank you, Richard. Back from Vegas and already tomorrow I'm back doing more watch trips. And is what happened in Vegas staying in Vegas or are you going to speak to us about it? Well, a lot of what happened in Vegas is staying there for the time being because that news is under embargo. But I have to say we learned a lot of information. There's a lot of great watches coming out. We met with the entirety of the Citizen Group, for example. Had a lot of stuff out there. Zodiac was out there. Shinola, surprisingly, is doing a bit of an upgrade. And so we're going to see a lot more enthusiast watches from Shinola. It's going to be quite a competitor to Zodiac, interestingly enough. We heard about some of the news from you know, Bell & Ross, Oris, Grand Seiko, Norcane. There was a great amount of activity there, so we're excited about that. And Vegas is a very different show compared to the ones in Europe. Um, people tend to have a good time. I am still recovering energy-wise. Good, good. And David, what have you been up to this week? Tomorrow I'm traveling for a Bulgari thing. It's still on their embargo. I believe that I can say this. I will have to double-check the embargo. But there's a new Bulgari aluminum coming out in collaboration with a historic battleship, part of the Marina Militare in Italy. So they are launching this in Naples. So I have to just pop over to Naples on uh, Wednesday at like 6 a.m. flight or something like that. But I genuinely look forward to speaking with the guys over there because there's always something new to learn about Bulgari and their watchmaking prowess. Good luck in Naples. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, do you want to stay two nights? I'm like, nah, I'm fine coming <laughs> you know, Just What's wrong with Naples? Uh, nothing. But there's a lot of trash there that has yet to be collected the last time I remember. <laughs> uh, uh, no offense to our listeners in Naples, but I'll be wearing my G-Shock, uh, let's put it that way. Does it, it need to be like shockproof and 200 meters water resistant? Yeah, and uh, not very expensive. Alright, okay. It's like London, is it? Probably, I don't know, but I've uh, you know, I've been uh, I've been given advice to just take it easy there. Alright, okay. Oh, I have a correction from last week's show about London, so I'll play that just now. Although I think you should probably note that this correction from Steve who you'll find at SDW1903 on Instagram, I think is more about him flexing as to where he spends his weekends than it is about having a go at me for suggesting that Watchfinder didn't have a place in central London. So I'll just play that just now. Hi, Rick. Yeah, just a heads up to let you know that uh, Watchfinder do, in fact, have a premises in Avery Row, which is next to New Bond Street in London. A small premises, but do have some presence there next to the, the big guns on New Bond Street. Anyway, keep up the good work with you and Ariel. I, mean, I look forward to tuning in every week. It's great listening to, and it's perfect for me lying on the beach here in Qatar every Friday on my weekend. So, cheers. So there you go, Steve. I hope you're enjoying your beach listen to this week's show. And to everybody else, do send us a message. You can contact us on Instagram 
uh, just contact me at Rick TikTok, or if you're listening on Spotify, send us a voicemail via Spotify or email Rick at a blog to watch.com if you want to contribute anything to the show. Couture at Vegas, one of the bits of news that I think it came out before, and I think it was related to Couture because they were sort of there, was Norcane and JCB. Were Norcane present? Yes, in Las Vegas, Norcane was there, and I got a chance to speak to the entire team, including Ted Schneider, who normally doesn't attend all the events. He's one of the investors. The Schneider family is the one that sold Breitling to CBC Capital Partners. So there's a lot of important people behind the Norcane brand. So here's exactly what happened. Because I was curious as well. I was like, what does this all mean? We know that Jean-Claude Biver has uh, a little while ago, you know, sort of retired. Several months ago, I debuted the news. We did the first interview together with his son, Pierre, and was said that he's going to be making his own watch brand that's basically going to be, you know, Biver and Son. And then after that, Norcane released a pretty, you know, massive sounding statement that Jean-Claude Biver had joined their board and will be advising them. And I'm like, well, what is all that all about? Is that just a lot of spin? Like, what's going on? And it turns out that Jean-Claude Biver has taken quite a liking to the young people at Norcane. They're all sort of in their 30s. And he's seen them as a brand that has potential. And he's going to be giving them feedback. He's really there to push them in the innovation department. He wants them to do a lot of what they do, but to push the product in a direction that's less classic and a little bit more distinctive and novel than where they are right now. So he's just sort of taken them under his wing. It's not a competitor to what he's doing. You know, his brand is going to be making a handful of watches per year, a very high end. This is obviously, you know, Norcane, which is in that sort of two to $5,000 range for the most part. And, you know, if it goes the way that everyone hopes, he will help them transcend into a new area, taking their energy, their manufacturing capability, you know, the personalities there, and help them do something that potentially could make the brand shine. Of course, it's not going to be the same as Hublot, but everyone thinks of that as a brand that sort of, you know, Jean-Claude Biver bought when that was floundering. Norcan isn't floundering. It's the opposite situation. It's doing well, but he is someone that has sort of a magic touch. And if they listen to him and things get, get on, it could be very well for everyone involved. So from what I heard, it's actually quite ex exciting sounding. It's a real participation of Jean-Claude Biver. And in September of this year, there's supposed to be an announcement in Switzerland that uh, a blog to watch has been uh, uh, tentatively invited to go to where more about the Jean-Claude Biver and Norkin relationship is going to be discussed. So it sounds like something big is happening. We will be there. And it's definitely something we're talking about for sure. What do we think JCB is getting out of this? That's a very good question. As of a couple of years ago when he was leaving the industry, I remember 2019, I asked him, I was like, okay, so what are you going to do next and all that? And he seemed to feel very strongly that he wanted to give back and educate the next generation. He said this multiple times. I tried to push him into teaching or creating an educational program. I guess what he settled into was helping younger watch brand entrepreneurs, people that needed guidance and mentorship, which is always very valuable, that would be deserving of him. And I think that, you know, it makes sense for his personality to follow in the line line of celebrity entrepreneurs who you know, help people underneath them. Yes, he could invest. He's a very wealthy man, but he's giving his energy and his time, his thoughts, his application of his taste and his, his ideas and his connections. You know, one of the things that they said that he did is uh, Norcane and Biver went around to suppliers together. And Biver was like, 
do this for them, do that for them. Come on, you got to push yourself more. And, you know, does the type of real business mentoring and involvement that he likes. So the question is what's in for him. I think he enjoys it. I think that he feels bored not having to do it. I'm sure he's compensated. I mean, he doesn't need the money, but I think for him, he loves the idea of building something, winning, uh, doing something different. Uh, you, you, you can't ret retire from this. I can imagine understanding wanting to retire from a corporate environment, you know, like an LVMH or something like that. But when, when you're the boss and no one's going to call you to get out of bed and they just sort of respond to what you want when you want, that, that sounds like a good use of his time, I'm sure. So that's my assessment of why it's exciting for him. David, do you think you can do a good uh, Jean-Claude Biver impression saying you can't retire from a passion? You've got the foreign accent in relation to us here speaking English. You don't, you don't think you can come up with a Jean-Claude Biver impression? We, we want you to act, David. I'm just looking forward to the first all black Norcane watch. I hear I hear you <laughs> slamming your fist on the table. Thank you for that. Exactly. that Because that's that's part of it. Thank you for noticing, Ariel. <laughs> you can't retire from a passion. <laughs> yes. that's That was a good one. That's clearly what he's demonstrating. That, that do. That do. When, when he came up with this all black thing for Hublot, he was very adamant about it. And I was, I was just trying to find that video because there's a bunch of them actually that used to be where he was literally slamming on the table and she's or when we were speaking with him you know just all that amazing Jean-Claude Biver energy about something like I told them like all back and you know like <laughs> but but sir you will not be able to read it no I want it all back <laughs> so, I'm sure the editing team will be most grateful of you slamming the table <laughs> but there we go I get the impression as you say Ariel that he's maybe just slightly bored he's you know announced that he's got his own brand but they're only going to produce a couple of watches a month that doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that's going to keep Jean-Claude entertained for very long despite the fact that he'll be very passionate about the quality of the watches is going to be a slow process and it doesn't strike me that he's lacking nervous energy that needs an, a, a way out if you're waiting for something slow to happen so maybe a, a larger brand or a brand with ambition to be a significant player is is probably where he needs to you know, vent some of his energy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in September. Anyway, as well as that, Ariel, apparently you're you're officially an influencer. Um. Oh yeah. Uh, well, officially you're the top hundred of something according to Watch Pro. They won't. I did contact Rob to find out if they'd actually given you a number. Like if this top hundred list that apparently you appear on, uh, courtesy of Watch Pro in America, whether it's like your number eleven or number ninety nine. But he told me that actually there is no order. It's just a list of people. It's like one of a hundred, you know, when they put limited editions. It was very flattering. At Couture, they had a little party, actually. And they pulled a section on the side. It was very nice. They invited, you know, all their buddies. Rob and his team came out, which was nice. And, you know, America does need a good business-to-business reporting publication for the watch industry you know we do a little bit of it but a blog to watch is really a consumer publication right we're there to tell people about new watches and review them and talk about the lifestyle of being a collector we're not really here to give the news on what's going on in the industry and, and watch pro has really been the title to do that there used to be a few more and it, it's really it so we help uh, with watch pro i've written articles for there and we're good allies uh, rob and i've had a lot of great discussions over the years and so we're very mutually supportive and i was at the, the party and they played a video with all 100 people and you're right it's not really like you know there's sections right there's different categories of types of people but 
I think that was a very fair assessment of the important people in the watch industry in America. And I was very flattered that I was recognized. So uh, I thank you to Rob and the Watch Pro team. And again, I, I can support a good, strong business-to-business -business publication in the watch space that I think watch brands and retailers and ever in between uh, definitely need and can make a lot of use of. So David, apparently you were number 101 and I was number 102. So we. But you guys aren't in America. Well, that that's fine. If we'd a been in America, point? we would definitely have been in the top 100 clearly i mean this is, a, this is a worldwide podcast i mean come on it must count america's our biggest audience surely me and david count as oh yeah qualifying look look <laughs> there's a business there's a business reason for these these titles the top 100 this or that okay watch pro didn't invent this i don't know who invented in the watch space but iw magazine used to do a, something called leading watch retailers and leading watch retailers i think they still do it was a printed publication and it was a it was a flattery text where it would have watch retailers often the ones that would pay to be in there and you could find this publication and let's say you're a watch brand and you were looking at it you're like i wonder what the top stores in america to be in are and you look at this oh oh, this store looks great. It's in here. So it was sort of a vanity publication and brands would pay to be in it and then also advertise to be in it. I'm not retailers to pay to be in it. Brands would advertise in it. So it was a good moneymaker. I think that's part of what Watch Pro is trying to do is say that people are going to be interested in learning about who these hundred people are. They'll look at this publication or buy it that will be valuable space to advertisers. So it is very mutually beneficial and it does help the people who are in the book, uh, but the book itself is a, is, a, is a business model. I have to say, reading through, they've published some of it online already to do with the stores and the businesses of retailing watches in the United States. And I have to say, reading through some of them, I'm like, blimey, there are a lot of watch shops in America. You know, I think of the chains over here. I mean, we are, you know, the UK is what, uh, a sixth the size of the States. But there were people being talked about in groups of watch shops whereby, you know, they've got 24 of them or they've got 72 outlets uh, and all of this kind of stuff. Right, Brands right. and store chains I've never even heard of that are absolutely huge. Whereas in the UK, there are very few, you know, that have more than half a dozen shops that are selling high-end watches. Whereas clearly in the states, it's just it's just a massive, massive market. I don't think I appreciated that it was such a scale above what happens in the UK. It's not just that there's more people. There's also clearly more shops and more retailers per person. It's just a bigger market segment in general. Yeah, that's true. But even even though there are so many stores, America is still very much an undeveloped market. You have good commercial presence in the established retail places, the big cities, the Los Angeles, New York City, you know, the Chicago's and Miami's of the world. But a lot of the what you would call B and C cities that still have plenty of money don't really have too much of a luxury watch presence or maybe they just have sort of a Rolex store and you, you might get as exotic as, you know, Omega and IWC. But to a large degree, an enormous volume of the people in America that could be into watches don't really know about it, don't really have access to it. So it is a huge market. It's it's just one that takes a lot of time to develop. There's no easy way or shortcuts. As you said, you have retailers here that in large part have more employees than some of the brands that they're trying to serve, yet they're expecting a lot out of those brands. So it's a, it's an interesting 
comparison of cultures and expectations. And, and, and it's it's not without conflict. I mean, American watch retailers and brands have a very strange relationship right now. And one of the, the realities that both are facing is that American watch retailers don't trust a lot of the major corporate brands. And the major corporate brands are trying to find, finding ways of evading the retailers to go directly to the consumer. And it's a strange back and forth where brands are like, oh, no, it's great to work with the consu- with the retailers. You know, we sell them watches and they do the business and that's great. Or at the same time, they're saying, oh, yeah, well, we like that, but we want to sell directly to consumers and bypass them. And it's a very strange back and forth that means that there's not a lot settled. And so watch brands who are smaller, independent brands, um, newer brands are the ones that are having some of the more prosperous relationships with a lot of American watch retail. And that's going to help so many parts of the country learn about the more niche brands over the next few years. So that's going to be very interesting to see unfold. So other highlights of the LA show? You mean the you mean, you mean the LV show? The LV show? I've been, I've been calling it LA for this entire show, haven't I? I yeah. think I probably have. Yeah, the Las Vegas they're, show. They're only about 300 miles apart. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's America. It's just over there somewhere. It's in the West. Another place with very little water and rain, right? Another, yeah, exactly. It's a desert. It's just, you know. So how was the rest of the Las Vegas show? I believe you got to borrow some some wheels. Yeah, we had a Lincoln Navigator automobile loaned to us by Lincoln that we drove there in from Los Angeles and tooled around in, and that was that was great. We always love working with um, other brands. Um the funny thing is that the keychain that they gave me was uh, had a little piece of uh, Shinola leather on it that said Lincoln on it. So it was just inter- and then we went to go visit Shinola. So it was just funny how it's a small world that you you know the the car takes you to the meeting and then on the keychain there's a collaboration between the car and the person you're meeting with. So there was a lot of interesting coincidences like that. We had a lot of top level conversation with brands about plans and things that we're doing. I see where the market is going a little bit. One of the things I think is very fascinating is that the side effect of not being able to get a Rolex watch is that it's prompted demand for a lot of other things. A lot of watch demand right now is nearly exclusively related to the fact that people can't get their first choice, which is Rolex. So like, I want to buy something. Uh-huh. It's a weird status to be in, but you know, I'll take that as demand versus, you know, what, what, what would you naturally have in a recession, which is a lot less demand. So the next few years, there might be this very strange situation in the watch space where a lot of watches sell because of demand that Rolex has created, right? So there's this idea of you got to get that Rolex. It's hard to get. It's worth a lot of money. And it's creating demand for watches. And, you know, a lot of people can't get the Rolex. So what they're going to do is, you know, get the next best thing. And we'll have to see how that intersects with the fact that the Rolex market, like the watch market in general, is softening. So there's yeah. too much items on the aftermarket. And and, and this is where I'll sort of end my, my experience in Vegas is at the Antique Jewelry and Watch Show that's sponsored by eBay. And this is uh, one of the shows where dealers meet to sell to other dealers and things like that. Uh, mostly jewelry, but the watches there, which of which there were many, were mostly Rolex timepieces. And what I've started to realize then and before is that if you go to eBay and you search for the Rolex watches, you go to Chrono 24, you, you go to any number of resellers, Rolex watches are available. It's uh, it's These are not rare anymore any rolex model you want from expensive to low end you can purchase now the weird thing is they're all still being priced at with a premium 
And that doesn't coincide with the fact that there's a lot of watches that are available. So there's a lot of unworn Rolex watches out there that people purchased because they thought it was a sales investment and they could sell it for more later. But there are so many out there and they're and they're still trying to stubbornly charge too much money that they're starting to offload them uh, at discounts right now. Slowly, slowly. And I don't think that Rolex watches will be easy to get. And I don't think we're going to get to a point where Rolex watches are 30% off anytime soon. But the softening of the Rolex watch market is going to have an effect on the success of all the other brands that people are buying instead of a Rolex. And I can't really predict, given the number of variables, exactly what that's going to look like in the next two or three years. Yeah, I mean, I was with a watch repairer this week, Martins of Glasgow, and was certainly hearing from them and from others that a number of people who, say, put their name down for a Rolex two years ago and have now got it delivered have decided, all right, okay, I'll buy it because actually I can't really afford to part with 10 grand. But if I buy the watch, I'll just be able to flip it and you know, make 11 grand or 12 or 15. And so it's worthwhile doing. But what they're finding is they're buying the watch that they queued for for two years for the retail price, taking it to markets within Scotland that would normally buy what's effectively a grey market watch and they're being offered less than retail for it. They're expecting to go in and make a profit, but actually the grey market retailer is now pricing those watches at under retail, despite the fact that they're still trying to then sell them for an inflated price, whatever their profit margin is, uh, to the extent that a number of the used guys, certainly in my local area, are now refusing to take additional stock as well because there's so much now being brought to them uh, just to be flat. And, and, and I have no sympathy here. I have no sympathy for any of these retailers at all. They have watches that many of them acquired at retail that they want to sell for above retail. This is pure greed. This is not where they're adding value to the market. And I experienced this many times in the last few days. There's these people that brand new box and papers Rolexes that many of them required at retail or just above retail or something like that. They could sell them, you know, at, at, at a far lower price. But we're talking about people are charging five, ten, thirty, forty thousand dollars above retail because they got addicted to the idea that they may be able to. And again, I do not think that consumers benefit in a market where a retailer or a dealer, as I've called scalpers and speculators in the past, purchase something at retail price, not wearing it, but with the idea of reselling it to a consumer at an inflated price. I think this is unethical. I don't think this is good for the market. And so the less and less this happens, the better as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sorry for people that are losing out because that was their business model, but you'll find something else to do. <laughs> David, are you seeing any changes in the market at your end of the woods? Uh, I just see that people are upset everywhere I look uh, in comment sections, in forums, and um, you know um, I see how people react. Like I'm part of one of uh, one of these larger used watch um, sale Facebook group, whatever, and uh, you know with like seventy, eighty thousand uh, members, and every once in a while a Daytona shows up for like fifty, sixty grand, or however however much money, stupid money anyway, and people just flip out, you know, and, and it, it still happens systematically that you find watches that were purchased in 2021 or 2022, brand new, unworn, you know, three, four times retail. And understandably, people are mad at that. Um, so, and I'm with, with them on that. But like Ariel said, this is currently how things work. And uh, frankly, I'm looking forward to, uh, to some sort of a change 
being introduced sometime soon. But there's only so much a retailer can also do. So just for an example, a friend of mine who's already purchased um, a Rolex, he brought another guy in there. They are both like top level management in big companies. And they were legit interviewed on, you know, what is it that they do? What do they work? Who are the people that they might know or whatever? So technically, it's almost becoming like an interrogation process that we are forcing Rolex and some other companies into doing in the way because we expect them to do due diligence and find out, you know, who they are selling to so that the watches don't end up on the secondhand market. Uh, triple retail and part of that process has to be that you lose some of the luxury experience that you were used to because you go in there and obviously they treat you very nicely but at the same time they have to because we expect them to figure out who you are so as to minimize the chances of uh, um, selling to a flipper i did see a great post this week on instagram and it was somebody trying to withdraw the rolex book from geneva library and finding out that there was a waiting list to withdraw the book about Rolex, let alone waiting list to get into the store and then waiting list to That's apply fine. for the watches. That's really funny. So, yeah, that I saw that on Instagram somewhere. I'll try and find that and reference it in the show notes. So other things that haven't changed, such as demand for Rolex, is Seiko releasing about a gazillion watches all at once. So let's talk about some watches. I'm completely confused as to what Seiko have done in the past week or so. All I know is that this GMT watch that they've released is clearly a contender for you know release of the year. I think personally it supersedes the Moon Swatch as release of the year. I think that this is the start, especially if they make this movement available for micro brands, then this is like something we're going to see a lot of. We're about to see the GMT world taken to task by the world of micro brands if they allow this movement to go forward. But have you guys seen this watch in the person? And if so, what do you think? And even if not so, what do you think? I've not seen a working version of it quite yet. There are times where we see samples that don't have movements and things like that. I agree with you that if you are at the budget end of the market and you like GMT watches, that this is a, a, a major change. What Seiko has done is they've injected themselves in the position of being maybe the top choice at this price point for this model. And so they've, they've really changed the paradigm there. And, and I don't know where this movement will be used elsewhere. But, you know, even if you're just looking at, you know, a Seiko 5 GMT price point, what was the price point again? It was maybe about four or $500? It's 470 euros that it's been announced. Okay. Tom Roth, who did the article on a blog to watch, that's the data he's come up with. So 500 US dollars, whatever. Yeah, so about so about $500 there. This is, you know, Seiko. There will be, you know, little modest discounts here and there, which which is good. So, you know, you're, you're looking at a strong value proposition they're going to be coming out with an enormous level of variety here. So Seiko has their finger on the pulse of what you know enthusiasts are talking about and what their target demographic, which is people that are on a budget or just getting into the hobby. I don't know offhand exactly who this displaces. GMTs are very popular. I'm a little bit bored personally of GMTs. They're a little classic and you know whatever for me. I don't. I travel a lot, but it's just not a functionality I use. So I. But I see a lot of people on the blog to watch team and a lot of people out there just completely in love with GMTs. And don't get me wrong, I have plenty of GMT watches. I just, when I see this, I think that's great for maybe a more novice watch collector version of myself or many, many other, pe many, many other people. I tend to look for a little bit more 
novelty in my GMT watches and things like that. But again, I think this is great. Top of the year, I don't know about that, but I mean, I, I think it's very, you know, I'm not the type of person that really ranks these things to begin with, to be honest. You're just saying that because they didn't give you a ranking in that Watch Pro thing. They just said you're I one never of rank 100. anything. David, am I not opposed <laughs> to almost all types of ranking? You you totally are. I can uh, watch for that. For the past decade that we've worked together, Ariel is like, no, let's, let's just not do that. Which is true, but um, at the same time, this is the word we are living in, in terms of, you know, YouTube and Instagram and whatever. Like the top five this, top ten this, the top five of the last three months or something like that, and it's all pointless. I, I'm all about ranking things personally, so uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I reckon this is top release of the year we just rank ariel as being the top non-ranker uh, of yes, the blog to watch you. team oh. <laughs> question are seiko making money out of this watch or is this a flex um for to sure kind of adjust the market is this actually them trying to shake things up a bit so they've minimized their margin on this? Because it's quite a lot of watch for 400, 500 bucks. Well, who would they be flexing to exactly? Well, I just wonder if it's that they're taking the knees out from brands that are selling GMTs or, you know, braceleted dive watches that are two watches at the kind of $1,500,000 mark. You know, it's not that they're trying to compete against other watches at 500 bucks is they're saying to i don't know oris they're saying to other micro brands they're saying wait a minute you're charging a grand for this or 1500 quid don't do that here's here's the same thing or something similar honestly for 500 bucks no offense to oris but i don't think they are on seiko's radar you know I, I think once you consider the quantities and the number of locations where these are these watches are sold and purchased it's not even the same league uh and to answer your question i'm i'm 100 percent sure they make good money on this i mean if you look at that bracelet and you see for yourself like how much a bracelet like this goes for um if you shop around online with the margin already applied to it it's literally tens of dollars <laughs> okay so um so it's not like this is an expensively made expensive watch it's a durable watch it's a better watch that you know many people like for all kinds of way uh, reasons but my impression was when I reviewed the Seiko 5 when this new generation came out was that I liked it. I liked it more than I liked the SKX, um, but it's still a, a relatively cheap feeling watch. So if you compare it to like an Orient Star, for example, they are way better made, uh, incomparably better made for not that much more money. Like a six, $700 Orient Star will probably be a whole lot better made, uh, especially the case and the bracelet are just way better. So I feel like for sure they are making good money on this, which is fine. I'm just saying that uh, I believe that's the case. Yeah, so you think it's the industrialization process that Seiko have got allows them to do this because it's made by robots, effectively? Cheaply, Well, yes. let, me, let me chime in here. I mean, let's look at the business model of many Japanese manufacturers in comparison to ones from others in the world. They're not really there to invent a lot of new things. What they do is they say, let's take something else that is popular in the market. I mean, there's established demand and let's reduce the cost while maybe at the same time making it more efficient. And the Japanese have a great history of taking things that other people have originally invented and improving it while being able to manufacture it at a lower cost and pass that savings on the consumer. And that's a wonderful part of Jan Japanese manufacturing culture. In watches, they've done essentially the same. They've taken concepts that were more or less, you know, being perpetuated and promulgated by 
brands in Europe and, and to a degree in America historically. And then they made their own version of it at a, at a lower cost. In some instances, they have you know, been bold and come out with brand new technology. And, and since the 1980s, they have, of course, been fantastic in the watch department of coming out with a lot of innovation. They continue to mostly do so in the area of electronic watches, which is, you know, a strength for them. So here you have Seiko identifying that a particular type of product is, is popular in the market, but a lot of the options are quite expensive. And what they do for, for watches as they've done in many other categories is say, we're going to make something that does as much as possible as the expensive ones that people want while looking good, but at you know, a fraction of the price because we've, you know, developed all these more efficient, you know, manufacturing techniques. And that's, that's just them doing what Japanese companies do best is, you know, is, is make a lower price version that's, that's nearly as good. And, and so I just think they're doing what they do. I hear what you're saying about, you know, is there a big market for GMTs? What are the plans? I don't think they see it that way. I think they just say, you know, GMT watches are here to stay. We can make a good one at a great price. We believe that when people discover that, they'll choose ours versus the competition and that you know, GMT demand is here to stay. That's sort of how I think they're approaching it. Cool. So as well as this GMT Seiko, they had New Arnie with the digital display at the bottom rather than the top, which was clearly revolutionary. They had another King Seiko. Uh, they had several new other prospects divers and one or two new Grand Seikos specifically for the American market. So was anybody at all across the rest of what Seiko, Grand Seiko released this week? Or was it just a dump of new watches, all of which are quite cool, all of which are their market? But why are Seiko just releasing this much all at the same time? Because their website's a mess. You can't find anything that you want to find it's just a it's one of the worst websites in watch world i don't know what it is about watch brands and websites but <laughs> very few of them seem to be able to produce websites that are actually useful to find stuff especially new things i mean a number of new things that were released last week that still aren't on the brand's websites there's no news section there's no new release section they could take a number of these brands could take a, a leaf out of a blog to watch and pretty much any other watch geek website as to how to actually order their own website. So anyone across the rest of the Seiko releases? Um, I try and avoid covering Seiko or featuring Seiko anywhere as much as possible if it's on me, just because they have such a ridiculously, insanely, infuriatingly terrible network of press sites. It's, it's, it's <laughs> willfully bad and... I feel like what makes it bad is that you feel like actual effort has been dedicated to making it so bad. Uh, you know, when you see like, oh, here's a huge press release and then two images which are like 400 pixels by 300 pixels wide, which is great for like, a, you know, if you can add them as a background if you have like a Sony Ericsson phone from like 15 years ago, but no other purpose whatsoever. And like, why am I looking at all these words if I can't show what I'm reading about, right? Or I can't, there's no way to do that. And I remember I had to go back and find these obscure, impossible to find, non-SEO friendly press sites for different events like Balsa 2018 and login and then somehow find something there. They are holding their images so close and so confidential that it is just, just, just unbelievably difficult to cover Psycho sometimes. They've improved massively over the last two, three years, 
But even so, the press sites and all that, it's just, it's just terrible. I don't know why, I have no idea. But again, sometimes I feel like they make it difficult on purpose. Like, oh, you know, whatever happens if someone uses a nasty, like in a nasty way or, or, or scenario or setting one of our images. And I'm like, yeah, but you would lose like hundreds or thousands of coverage across the world that you don't even know about because there's journalists writing about watches everywhere. And they would need official images because, you know, not everyone has access to these watches all the time and not everyone is a photographer. And yet they make it so difficult. Rent over. There's a lot of complex, you know, things to discuss about watch brands and websites. Seiko is not the only company that struggles in this area. And, 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 and you're not the only ones to say or feel these things. At the same time, uh, the conversation about Seiko being so rapid with their new releases is not lost on them. They're hearing it more and more from other members of the media, retailers, consumers. They have breached the saturation point. And I think it's a very real thing for brands to, to hear. You know, we, we talk a lot about brands not advertising enough and, you know, people don't hear from them often enough and don't get their storytelling. There's actually on the other side of that too much forms of marketing and advertising or just messaging and there's an oversaturation point. It doesn't happen all the time. I've definitely seen it multiple times over the last 15 years or so where once in a while a brand will just actually be in someone's face so much people are like shut up and the brand needs to step back a little bit and recognize that People don't need to hear from them every day. And you have to think about some of those marketing emails you get from companies you like. But if you get a, a, a marketing email every single day, you're going to have to say, we have to break break up. Like, I can't have our relationship anymore. Like, you know, I can't, I can't give you this money all the time. And so I feel that Seiko is kind of becoming like, you know, an overly needy, uh, uh, you know, mate where they constantly need attention. You have to spend money on them all the time because they're just, they're, 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 never happy, right? They're just never happy. They're just constantly dissatisfied. Remember how much attention you give Seiko the next <laughs> day. It's, now you got to spend more money. There's nothing else to fall in love with. So I, I think that Seiko has been trying to find a strategy. And this is the last thing I'll say about this. They're trying to find a strategy that allows them to move as many watches as they feel they need to, to maintain profits. But with the understanding that they're not going to have a lot of high volume watches right it's not going to be where they make one piece and they make a million of it and that's great those watches that they used to be able to do that with it's 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 not the case I mean, the market right now wants constant novelty people like new things so they went from building a lot of a fewer number of watches to having to make a lot more types of watches in lower numbers to produce the same types of volumes that their their factories need to to you know to pay their bills and things like that. So there's a lot of complicated reasons why they just can't scale down production. And you're seeing a clunky though understandable way of trying to uh, handle a complex industrial need. Is it possible that Seiko should actually be just doing two releases a year, as in like have their own show, Seiko World? I know there's an exhibition hall going free in Basel and just get everybody over there and just have a week of doing all the Seiko launches. Or not be stupid about it and just do it in Japan. I understand Japan's not open right now, but presuming it will be, stop trying to pander to the Europeans by having a, a, a sub-grade placement in a show that mostly wants to celebrate European luxury and have a watch show in Japan. I know the yes. brands are, are hyper-competitive, but either do one individually or do one at the same time. 
Citizen has basically said, we're just going to use Couture. Casio was also there in a larger way. They had doubled the space than they had in 2021 at Couture. So Casio and Citizen have decided Grand Seiko is there. Seiko proper was not there yet. But I think that we're moving back to that direction eventually. All brands will recognize that this is absolutely maddening. Nobody wins. They're only doing it because they feel like it's free advertising to release all these new watches all the time. And they'll have to go back to releasing, you know, one to two times a year for the most part. I mean, this new Prospects RNA Diver is an amazing look. I'm a big fan. I've got one of these. And it's literally been reported. We've not reported on it. It's literally been reported in one place of any significance in the world of watch media that I can find. You know, and yet if they just released this and done it properly and given everybody samples or images, this would probably have been a reasonable story on most people's websites. So, I mean, the idea of all the Japanese brands getting together somewhere in the world at the same time versus going to Watches and Wonders, I have to say, I would be quite excited to go to a Japan-only watch event with Seiko, Grand Seiko, Citizen, all the, you know, there's loads of other wee Japanese brands that are out there. I think that'd be a great show. I think if it was a choice of you could go to one or the other, I would certainly, you know, give it a a good deal of thought about going to the Japanese brand show because you'll you'll just be such a variety of things. There'll be stuff there that A, you can afford and B, you can get hold of in the shops afterwards, uh, unlike quite a lot of the brands that would show at Watches and Wonders. So there we go. Get in touch, Seiko. We'll we'll sort you out. Promise. We'll not just take all the watches. So I don't know why watch brands make it so difficult. Like, what's difficult about a website? You just put on what you're selling and make sure you can search in a reasonable order. But they seem to be so torn between trying to tell stories, which make it impossible to find anything, and just trying to have endless lists of stuff, which you can't just search everything. I just want a button on these websites that says, show all. Just show me all the watches in one. I'll scroll down. I'll do that bit of work. But no, you have to go into categories and drop downs and us. Oh, my my, my new pet peeve is these brands. Actually, I think Tudor's done it. Some others do it as well. When they think that their customer is too stupid to understand millimeters. And they are like, oh, you want something between 35 and 39? And no, I don't want to see the 39 next to the 36. I want the 36. Why do I have to see all these flipping watches for all kinds of people in all kinds of sizes. Like if you want the 41, you definitely don't want a 44. And they're like, well, they are vaguely the same thing. And I'm like, no, why don't you just, and you can tell from experience, there's someone there sitting, oh, it looks clunky. I don't like it. You know, let's just have three options. And I'm like, no, that's totally, even, even <laughs> cars come in more sizes than three, right? So it's like, why would you do that? It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, uh, there we go. I think we'll have a, a dedicated show about moaning about watches. We should probably do an award at the end of the year for the best and worst watch websites. Maybe it's holding these guys accountable yeah, with but, help. But then that means we'd actually have to go to them and use them a lot. I don't want to have to do that. Scary it stuff. It also means we'd have to rank them, Ariel, and we know how opposed you are to that. Yes. <laughs> there will be no ranking. Anyway, right. Let's get on with some other watches. We launched a pretty exciting initiative with Raymond Vile, and it is a design, a new watch, uh, you know, 
campaign. I wanted to approach this concept of collaboration watches a little bit differently, and we we worked a lot with Raymond Vile to figure out a good solution. And you know, they liked the idea of making a watch for the blog to watch audience. And I was like, look, I don't actually know exactly what the audience wants from Raymond Vile. I could design one, but you know, I, that would be you know the watch that Ariel wants. Let's experiment by creating a campaign that allows the audience in some, you know, structured way to tell you what they want you to do. And it's based upon the idea that watch brands are at their best when designing for a specific purpose. Uh, a very specific, you know, good example is, hey, I need a watch that I can read underwater. Build me that. Okay, it's got to be legible underwater. It's got to be water resistant. It's got to be durable. Like that's a great classic example of building a timepiece for a particular purpose. So I said, how do we create something like that that makes sense with Raymond Vile, they're really into music. And so what I said is, let's begin by trying to figure out a category of watch that you should build and then move along a couple of steps for people vote and submit feedback where we narrow it down to something final and that the blog to watch audience will be able to buy what this resulting thing is, like, you know, at a discount. Um, and it will be, you know, produced as, as, a, as a, you know, at least a serial production watch for a while. Um, and let's let's see how that goes. So it's going to be several pieces to this. The first one launched. And what I wanted people to do is select a musical genre. These genres have been chosen by Raymond Vile. So this isn't me. They they chose a selection of, of five, I believe, musical genres. And we talked a little bit about what those genres mean to them. And so people are just going to say, which one do, relates to me? Which one do I think would be cool for Raymond Vile to design a watch for. Uh, so for example, there's new wave synth player. So if you are a musician in sort of the 1980s with new wave synth, what would be a watch uh, that you would be wearing? And you could say, Raymond Vile, I want you to design that. And so that is a synth. You could be a jazz player. In fact, new wave synth and jazz player are the two that are winning right now as the sort of top categories. And, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So you can go and, and vote uh, we have uh, several more days, about at least a week and a half to vote and to add your feedback. Raymond Viles designers are going to take all that. And then we're going to come with another post where there's going to be some additional choices and some actual watch designs to look at. So a novel thing that we developed with them. It's going to be exciting. We love trying new stuff. And I can't wait to see how everyone participates. First of all, it's Raymond Vile. I need to blame for not having a Glasgow bagpipe option, presumably. I strongly believe there should be a write-in option, much like American elections, whereby you can have a box that you can just make your own suggestion and get other people to vote on it. Because those people are ever elected. <laughs> true, true. But the thought of having a jazz player watch 12 musicians all playing different tunes, that's not a watch. So I'm, I'm for the new wave synth player gets my vote, despite the fact that you've used London as the background for it. So yeah. I go and check these out and do vote. It's quite interesting, but I, I am surprised that jazz and new wave synths are the top. I thought it would be a toss-up between ukulele player and hip-hop producer. But there we go. What do I know? Clearly nothing. No, I mean, look, you can never predict these things. And I did not know that, you know, look, there's two strong ones that are almost neck and neck. Like, you can yep, not, yep. not ever predict this. Yeah. So, David, what gets your vote? Backpipe sounds good, but Rick, if you want uh, a watch for that, it already exists. 
it's called the Speedmaster Moonwatch. It was tested for insanely loud noises, uh, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so. But it failed the test because it's not water resistant enough to survive a Scottish summer. Oh, as you, we- as, as you well know. That's as you well know. What is, what is Hungarian? What is traditional Hungarian music? Is <sighs> is there a Hungarian traditional instrument? Some sort of lute? Um. Well, not not a traditional instrument per se. I mean, there's there's a few, but uh, it's more about using a variety of them when playing folk music so it's not just one per se so the ukulele might might get in there maybe in a kind of folky type sense so guess now what you think we're going to end up with i mean how many iterations are there going to be ariel do we know no we we, how many different poles are there going to be is this going to be like a five stage process oh it's going to be about about five different stages till we get to the end there i don't want people to think too much about it i just sort of want them to enjoy the process and yeah, yeah. see how it goes not try to influence it the less people try to influence the outcome i think the worse you know the better it's going to be so just go in there and just you know approach it with your with your genuine feedback but ariel you're an influencer you're the top 100 influencers it's your job um you want me to influence the outcome the, the, look the outcome <laughs> should be genuinely what you feel you could relate to if you're into a musical genre and appreciate the aesthetics to go around it choose that one and i'm going to push raymond vile very very hard behind the scenes to make sure they come up with something satisfying so the more people that participate the more that raymond vile is going to take this seriously cool and they are i mean raymond vile have a, a history of making watches that have musical kind of tie-ins yeah so certainly their designers have some experience of thinking about musical genres and then, you know, figuring out a design theme to go with that. So it will be interesting to see what you come up with. Also, I think the question here is not necessarily what kind of music you like, but what type of music it would result in the coolest watch. So we, once you go to the article, you will see all these uh, collages that uh, give you an idea on, uh, you know, uh, what these uh, genres entail. And I feel like a synthwave watch would be really freaking cool because it was a cool era for design. I'm not saying the 1930s weren't, but, you know, that's a kind of watch that we see very few of and would uh, probably uh, result in something amazing. You know, David brought up something interesting where you have this split between this jazz and new wave. And I think what that actually is, is a split between what people are interested in design-wise. You still have a massive interest in vintage nostalgia. But I think the pandemic has washed a lot of that away, and people are now thinking about the future again. I think that we recognize the future is not going to look like the past. And so people are very interested in the sort of experimentation and the what-if-ness that you see in futuristic or contemporary uh, watches in vintage watches you really only get a reminder of the past which decreasingly i think looks like what we're going to be experiencing in the future so that's why i find this interesting is that you find that sentiment is split still a lot of people interested in that nostalgic past but more than i think would have been around two or three years ago are interested in a futuristic decision and out of all the choices new wave synth was definitely the most futuristic of uh, of the possible design directions exactly we look forward to seeing what that actually produces is the process said, about five iterations so it's going to take a couple of months to come up with a final conclusion or is it a bit quicker than that we're looking at about maybe six to ten weeks before we get the the next round now the next round is going to be probably the most important right now there's no watch designs it's all choosing theme by the next round we're going to see hopefully these five completely different approaches 
to the watch that's going to be right now either for the Jazz or New Wave uh, synth. That's that, Those are the two ones it's going to be. And you're going to see multiple options. There'll be five potential Jazz watches, five potential New Wave synth ones. And that will be very interesting because at that point, people are going to be starting to really be designing a watch. Is price going to be one of the things? Like what kind of price range are we designing this for? Or is there already a kind of idea that this is going to be a $500 watch or a $3,000 watch or a $10,000 watch? Or is that going to be part of the process? We can't know that right now. I mean, for example, I imagine in the next range, there's going to be an option between a chronograph and a three hand or maybe a GMT. And I think people inherently know if you choose the chronograph option, it's going to cost more than the three hand. So uh, we'll see where it goes. But, you know, Raymond Vial has a price point that people know them for. It's, you know, it's a more accessible price point, still a high quality product. But, you know, they're not known for making gold watches uh, and they're not known for diamonds and things like that. So it's going to be within the wheelhouse of what they do. So something else that is uh, Japanese, dive watch related and in a reasonable price point was covered this week on the website by Sean and this is The Citizen uh, debuting the new Promaster dive watch and this is has a relation to a previous watch do with orcas. I'm not quite sure when we started calling them orcas rather than killer whales. Was that a kind of cancel culture thing? Mm-hmm. That we weren't allowed to call them killer whales anymore. They had to be called orcas. <laughs> I don't know who decided that, but somebody did. And so this is based on a design that did exist called the orca. You can kind of see the orca type influence in the way that the hour markers are represented with loom. I am not that familiar with either the previous version or this version, have either of you seen it in the flesh? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I we wore these watches over the last couple of days. They're pretty fun, real accessible price point. The Orca was such a popular watch, especially in the North American market for Citizen. I think starting in the '90s and into the early 2000s, they just had this distinctive look on there. I think the community nicknamed them the Orca. I don't think that was really part of the design. I think it was just a way of having hour markers that were just too large and that sort of looked like some of the visual eye or facial patterns of a killer whale. So it's come back now as sort of a redo of a heritage piece. It's it's very fun. There's three different color versions right now. I don't remember the price point. I'm thinking around the $400 price point. Yeah, it's about $475. Okay, so it's a little, little higher than that. But again, I, I believe these are in the Super Titanium case. I mean, Super Titanium is freaking awesome. It is the best titanium product on the market when it comes to durability and, and things like that. I mean, Citizen absolutely has the corner of the market. But other people do nice titanium. Uh, but if you want durable titanium, it's got to be the Japanese. And even though Seiko and Casio do very good titanium, Citizen is is, is the leader uh, easily. So yeah, I'm I'm I'm. These are going to be exciting for people. They're going to like them. I mean, this is a 46 mil wide watch, but basically lugless. How does it wear? It doesn't wear that big. I mean, as is the case with most lugless watches, they will wear smaller. I would say that it's it does it's it's not exactly the same. But if you've worn a Seiko Tuna. It's sort of in the same wheelhouse. It kind of sits high in your wrist. It is comfortable. You, you don't need a massive wrist to wear. It is a big watch, but you don't need a big wrist to wear it, if that makes sense. I was surprised that it's only... Because it was released for World Ocean Day on... I think that was June the 8th. I am surprised it's only 200 meters water resistant. I don't know why. I thought like... Yeah, you know, Citizen is very... They were, they were bigging up the water... You know, that it would be a 500 meters or a 1,000. It just struck me as... 
uh, Citizen and Seiko, for that matter, are very stratified in the way that they approach water resistance. They see it as being part of the value proposition. It's almost like accuracy. Like you see this as Seiko, for example, where the less expensive mechanical watches are less accurate than the more expensive ones when it's sort of arbitrary in, in, to a degree uh, because you can make a accurate lower end one. So I think with water resistance, Citizen has, you know, 300 meter and more. They have the Ecozilla. They feel that it stratifies the value proposition better if the more expensive you go the more water resistance you get if that makes sense yeah so do we actually think this is probably more than 200 meters water resistant like um, probably just using the same sort of stuff but actually as you say it's a marketing thing what i know is that citizen has been making dive watches for so freaking long i think that you know 999 out of a thousand people diving would be more than happy with this from a durability standpoint i don't think there'd be any issues at, at any depth they're going to and this is the eco drive solar quartz that's in this uh david are you a fan of solar quartz i am a big big fan i i freaking love my g-shock uh, that is a solar watch and it retails at like 99 dollars or something like that <laughs> and uh, i just i just love it for that i i've it's been a while that i've had an eco drive around but uh but this orca is just it's just fantastic it has this deeply likable 90s vibe to it um i would you know there's a good chance i will pick one of these up in black go and check out the article by sean on the blog to watch website that is our show nearly over for this week gentlemen ariel you're still recovering from vegas but you indicated that you're going on another trip very soon where are you off to who are you going to see I'm just going across town here in Los Angeles, and I will be spending some time with Vacheron Constantin, who is celebrating, you know, the art of watchmaking uh, and a new model here in Los Angeles. I will be spending some time with Mr. Alexander Schmidt, who is now running Vacheron Constantin in America. I first met him more than 10 years ago now when he was working at Mont Blanc. So I've known him at multiple brands. We'll be very excited to catch up with him and see what's going on at, at Vacheron Constantin. Good stuff. And David, you have a trip planned, as you said, to Naples. Did you tell us who that was for? Uh, Bulgari. Bulgari. So Organized crime. Organized crime. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. So do like and subscribe to the show. Send us a review. Do check out the superlative show that Ariel produces on a Monday. Uh, who were you interviewing last week, Ariel? I don't remember who's actually coming up on the next show. Uh, we were like seven episodes ahead, ahead. So it's like, it's a surprise for me when the new one, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Good stuff. I'll go and check that out. Uh, Ariel, where can people find you on the internet? My Instagram account is at Ariel to watch. And if you have thoughts or questions about the episode, definitely email Rick at rick at a blog to watch.com. And David, where can people hunt you out on Instagram? It's abtw underscore David. Good stuff. And can you remember where we find Ryan Reynolds on Instagram? I think it's at Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> I, I don't. I think. I don't think it is actually. But there you go. I'm sure if you just Google it, you can give a shout out to Ryan Reynolds. So do copy Ryan Reynolds in on all your watch posts. Just spam him. That is it from us. So uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from both of them. Talk soon, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>